0: Welcome, everyone. This is What Does the Torah Say About Modern Economics? We have the pleasure of learning with Rabbi Jacobson Searing today. Um, This is the third of six sessions. If you would like to catch up with previous recordings, you can find them on our Facebook page currently under under facebook.com slash Drisha Drisha Institute slash videos. Um, And videos will go up about 30 minutes after class. And if you are joining us on Facebook, the chat is being monitored. Please feel welcome to ask questions. I'll keep an eye on it and relay the questions to Rabbi Zeri. If you are watching on Zoom, also feel free to ask questions in the chat. Um, we'll to wait a few minutes, another minute or so, just to see to, for a few more students to trickle in. Um, and source sheets, I'm just going to post short, sorry, source sheets in the relevant chats. With that? Yeah. Um okay. very good. See we've got a couple crowded and' want checking in on Facebook. Hello there. And just remember the chat for, the, the 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 chat box, or rather the comments box is yours to ask questions. Now that people have sources. Um, okay. Where do you mean you are?
1: Um, okay, so uh, welcome back to uh, to th- to week three. Uh, so the first two weeks we focused on the topic of uh, of Yovel. and we uh, we specifically dealt with the with the question or we used Yovel to deal with the question, um, does the Torah have something unique to say about economics or is it reducible to uh, to other economic systems, whatever you want to call them, capitalism, socialism, take your pick. Um, question one and question two is even if it does have something unique uh, to offer. Um, can that unique vision carry over to a world in which the entirety of uh, of society uh, is not run in under a Torah framework? Um, is something especially something as big uh, as Yovel and the economics vision that it brings with it? Um, is that something that makes sense where the theological backdrop and the social backdrop that we have for um, for the Torah. And overall, it uh, doesn't apply. Um, so that was what we dealt with uh, with last week. Um, and the point that will bridge between that and, uh, and this week was we noted, um, according to Rabbi Sachs, um, speaking on a philosophical plane, um, and uh, Professor Josh Berman speaking in a comparative uh, sense to the ancient Near East, Um, One of the reasons that it seems that the Torah has certain prescriptions um, in economic areas that are different than maybe what you would expect is that um, the Torah um, and many ancient societies in general viewed economics as an expression of the social world uh, rather than the other way around. And therefore, if you have a certain uh, expectation of fraternity, an expectation of brotherhood, of brotherhood, an expectation to treat uh, the people around you as family. So that's going to raise the level, the expectation uh, that we have for um, what you need to offer people um, in terms of um, economics. And it's going to go beyond what um, a society in which there wasn't such an expectation uh, would imply. Um, and what I want to do this week is focus mostly on the laws of interest. But before we get there, I want to make what may be an obvious point, but I think it has to be made anyways. And that is that halacha, Torah in general, um, clearly in overall, overall um, has goals that are not only economic. That should be obvious. I Meaning there are plenty of things we do. Um, in Torah that are not just about uh, economics. So that's sort of obvious. What I think is less obvious is that's true also within the market, within the economy. Some of the goals that we have in the economy are not just economic. Now, we know that here and there, you'll find that in the modern market, right? You'll have companies that have strong um, a, a strong social vision that um, <coughs> would be committed to uh, political causes, to environmental causes, um, and the like. Um, but that's generally the exception, right? They'll, you'll point to companies, um, and usually, and many of those companies will have those goals because, um, they may also have, uh, Religious founders, right, whether it be, I don't know, uh, Turkey Hill ice cream, right? If you ever go to the uh, Turkey Hill experience, you'll you'll get the whole history of the very, very devout Christians um, who founded it. Um, And because they were such devout Christians and believed so deeply in in the values of charity and helping the poor and helping their employees. So during the Great Depression, um, they just didn't make any money. They didn't take any salary for themselves so they could keep their workers on, even though they couldn't really afford them. Um, so you'll see things like, you know, you still have companies like that. Um, but that's the exception that proves the rule where most companies, um, don't really get involved in these things. And to the extent that they do, we can, you know, to not be too cynical, but, (laughs) but at some level, we know it's true. Um, you know, it's because it's a marketing issue, right? People, companies will buy carbon, um, you know, carbon write-offs or whatever they're called, carbon... Whatever it's called, right? Um, because people care about the environment. They may not care about the environment, um, but they will pay, right, to plant more trees. Um, but it's not part of their vision per se. That's very different in halacha. And I want to give you a quick few examples. These are not all biblical, um, but they make the point that when we talk about a, a Torah economy, um, we don't limit ourselves to uh, quote unquote economic. Uh, issues only. So I'll I'm going to share the source sheet now. <coughs> um so here's just an example. These are the first Mishnayot in Masechet of Um now even though literally Masechet Zara means the law the tractate of idolatry, um the truth is that the laws about idolatry are not found um for the most part in Masechet of Zarah, they're found in Sanhedrin. Um Masechet de Zarah deals primarily with the laws about dealing with um, idolaters um, in society, and therefore it deals more with um, things like eating the foods that they make, eating in their places uh, of of food production, drinking their wine, drinking their beer, uh, things like that. Um, And the first chapter deals with doing business with idolaters. Um, so in that context, the Mishnah tells us, before the holidays of the non-Jews, three days before, you can't buy and sell from them, to lend to them, to borrow from them, objects meaning, and or to borrow or lend money, to repay a loan, or to be repaid, Rabbi Yehuda Omer nifra in mehen nifneisho meitzarlo. Rabbi Yehuda says that you can be paid back, meaning you can collect a loan because it'll cause them pain. Um, now the Gemara goes on to explain what is all these pro- what are all these prohibitions about. So the Gemara says, listen, here's the issue: before the holidays, people are in a religious mood, so if they make a good business deal um, or they get a good loan. Or even if they pay back a loan, as we'll see, and they, that's off their chest. So when the holiday comes and they're going to their temple anyways, and they're celebrating whatever all the holidays that are listed there in the first chapter of Zarah, Saturnalia, and Kalan, Kalanda, and all the different random holidays that they have, they will thank God and say, you know, it's, such, it's, a, it's a great Saturnalia because I made that deal with that Jew. And therefore you are going to contribute by doing business with them so close to their holiday to an idolatrous sacrifice being brought, an idol- idolatrous uh, hymn of Thanksgiving being said, um, etc. Um, right, and the Mishnah ends that, for that reason, you just says, well, you can collect a loan because no, no one's going to say, "Oh yes." He collected his loan. I have less money in my pocket. I'm going to thank my God that I have less money for the holidays. And the chachamim, the sages, say, "No, I'm a low awful bishemayzerach shavse nah. You know what? He may not be happy now, but people get it off their chest. They're happy that the, the money that they don't owe the money anymore. He might thank his God for that. <coughs> um, and the and the mission continues. Um, Is it only three days before is it three days after? Okay. So I know this might be obvious. We can't participate in idolatry, but it's not actually obvious that if I asked you, can you participate in idolatry, we all know the answer is no. But I think if I'd asked you to think about, does the fact that we oppose idolatry, does that affect the economy? even if we notice Mishnah putting the question that bluntly and saying, you know, do the laws of idolatry, which are theological in nature, do they affect the goals of the Jewish economy? The answer is, well, yes, right? It is simply, you simply cannot claim that a Torah economy, once you incorporate the, definitely the biblical and the rabbinic laws, that the only goals are the goals that we would classically consider economic. They're just not, right? You, you want to make money, but through that money, you're going to contribute to someone worshiping idolatry? Well, I'm sorry. You can't do that. Um, now, once the Mishnah is talking about that, the Mishnah goes quite far afield here and says all types of other things that you can't do. So in Mishnah, hey, the Mishnah says, dvar lim kar lagoyim. these are things you can't sell. Um, to the non-Jews, because they're used in general for idolatry, uh, idolatry, right? So it's not just a few times a year that certain things encroach. The ever-present nature of idolatry in an idolatrous society is such that the your economic options are curtailed, so you can't sell them. Etc. These are Whatever exactly these are, Ulivona, frankincense, Tarnagolat, halavan, hal- Apparently, they had particular worship with a white rooster, etc. Um, so now you discover that the implications of idolatry mean that there are there there things that constrain you, not just around the holidays, but always. Once the Mishnah has moved on from idolatry in Mishnah Vav, the Mishnah then says Makom Shenagulim Behema Dakalagoyim Mochre. There were different customs about selling small animals like sheep. But you could never sell them big animals. And the Gemara goes on to explain because of the fact that they'll work them on Shabbat in certain problematic circumstances. So again, now you see that Shabbat, without getting to the details, the value of Shabbat affects what you're allowed to sell. Mishnah dubin You're not allowed to sell them lions and tigers and bears, oh my, right, or anything that's going to cause damage. Why? Because when you think economically, you also have to think about the well-being of society. Bonin Basilki. You can't um you can't sell them. <laughs> the Basilica. you can't <coughs> sell them a guard, <laughs> a tribunal, it's um, ubima, a stadium, right where they would have these violent sports, etc. And again, each of these is a topic within itself, and the, the the implications in the Gemara that it spells out in terms of selling weapons um, is a very important uh, halachic topic, and I don't want to get into it. But what I want to point out simply is that when you read the first chapter of Odesara, it is obvious that a Torah economy, broadly speaking, with especially once you incorporate the rabbinic laws and the biblical laws and not just the biblical ones, cannot possibly be construed as only caring about purely quote unquote economic concerns. Um, And the question I want to really deal with is, what does that tell us about the nature of the way the Torah thinks about the economy? Um, And again, we're going to try to answer, well, and what does that mean about um, the modern economy? So I think in the end of the day, we're never going to be able to escape the point that at some level and to be fair everyone agrees with this right everyone has their red lines right it's just not true in the modern economy that all that matters is economic concerns is making money and pleasing your um shareholders and things like that everyone understands that there are red lines sometimes we pretend that we don't know about the red lines right but in theory you know we we don't think it's legitimate for companies to be benefiting from slave labor um and the like we we know that companies sometimes You know, turn a blind eye to it. Um, But at least in theory, if they know about it um, and it can be proved that they know about it, right? They will be forced either by pressure and sometimes by law um, to care about something other than getting the 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 cheapest possible um, price for the product that they're selling. Um, So, I don't think it's so novel to say that. An economic system must incorporate values in the end of the day beyond economic ones, but it still has to be said. Where I think this is even more far reaching, though, because we could claim that those issues where it's public, right? It's, you know, wild animals running around in the streets, right? You're talking about people's lives and idolatry in a society that, you know, idolatry is understood to be the worst of the worst possible things you can do. Okay, so maybe those are the red lines. Um, But the laws of interest, the laws of repeat um, indicate a much more striking uh, limitation because when we think about interest and charging money for interest, um, that's basically definitely in the modern economy, um, the bread and butter of the economy. We all understand that money um, over time has value and therefore lending money without interest is not just… Um, neutral. It's a lost opportunity, and it's lost money. Simple as that. That's what it is. Right? We all understand that, especially with, with inflation the way it is, we all understand that if you lent 10,000 dollars, you know, whatever it was a year, let's say, a year and a half ago, right, for one year, and inflation was, whatever it was, 8.5 percent, if you lent10,000 dollars and you did not charge interest and the person paid you back exactly a year later, $10,000, right? You understand that you have functionally lost 8.5% of that $10,000, right? So not charging interest, it's not just a lost opportunity. It is simply losing money, right? You are giving them a gift of whatever, at the very least, of what um, inflation is going to be that year plus the lost opportunity, right? So the, the value time of money. So the fact that the Torah prohibits charging interest to Jews um, says something very important about the Torah, point one. And point two is that we need to think very carefully about what it says about the Torah's economic views because this is one of those prohibitions that is limited between Jews and does not apply to non-Jews. And we need to figure out what that tells us about the laws of of of, ribid, of interest, and about the economy in general. So <coughs> first, let's just see some of the verses and understand how important these laws are. So if you look at number three, the laws that, as they appear in Shemot, Im Kesev Talver ami, if you lend money to my people, which is generally understood to be a mitzvah, not just if you want to, but you should, or you must, et the poor person with you, lo um, you shall not be to him like a creditor, lo do not exact interest from them. And similarly, it then puts limitations in terms of the pledges you're allowed to take, in, in source four, in Vayikra Chafey, the chiamucha if your friend becomes poor, imach, And he comes under your authority. Do not take from him interest, accrued interest. Um, Fear God and may he live with you. Don't give him money in advance interest or accrued interest. Why? Because I'm the God who took you out of Egypt. Right? This is one of the reasons I took you out of Egypt, to not lend your brother's interest. In Zvarim Chav Gimel, in 23, we get it again. Do not lend money with interest to your, to your brother. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Money. Food, right? Doesn't matter if you're lending him money, doesn't matter if you're lending him eggs, doesn't matter what you're lending him, you do not take interest. But, and now you get the novelty that to the non Jew, you either can or must charge interest. Your brother, you cannot. So that God will bless you. Now, these laws are repeated extensively in Yechezkel, in number six. Right? A person, he, should, he shouldn't wrong anyone if he's returned the debtor's pledge, take nothing by robbery, if he's given bread to the hungry, clothed the naked. Right. So in this context, of all the good things you can do to the poor, pasukhet and he doesn't give money with interest. He doesn't take interest. And he will abstain from wrongdoing. Um, and it goes on like this, right? So we, So the value that we place on this prohibition to... not charge interest when we lend money is repeated so many times. It's clearly very important, which makes us have to ask why, right? How can we forbid interest when, as we said at the beginning, it's not like lending interest, you know, if the Torah had said, um, or the law had been understood, don't lend with, you know, predatory prices, predatory lending, right, lending rates, right? Don't do 20%, I don't know, right? So then, okay, I would understand, right? But the way it's understood halachically is don't lend with any interest at all. And as we said, that is an irrational thing to do from a purely economic perspective, right? You're at the very least losing the time value of money and if there's inflation, you're just losing money, period, right? You're just giving them money, right? That's it. Um, so what, why would you do this? Why is this so important? And if it's so important, why is there a distinction on this particular law between Jews and non-Jews where you are either obligated, you're either allowed or according to many we show name, obligated that when you lend money to non-Jews to do it, uh, with interest, right? Why is that different? So, the first question we have to ask is, okay, why is it prohibited to lend money with interest? So, uh, I'll stop for questions for for suggestions for a second, right? Why? Why do you think that it's so important? What is the value? Why would you not lend money with interest, or why would you let not? Why would you lend money but without interest? That's probably a better formulation, right? <laughs> not lend money with interest would imply you could choose not to lend. That doesn't seem to be the implication of the versus. Um, why should you lend
2: and specifically without interest? Okay, no suggestions. Okay,
1: fine. So Oh wait, there is?
2: Oh, I'll in
1: Facebook chat too. Okay. Um, okay, so um, the Sfarno just takes it very gener- generically in number seven and he says <laughs> After we tell you listen, make sure that you don't cause God to leave the Jewish people. God commanded about certain kindness, acts of kindness we can do that will bring God amongst the Jewish people. And this is one of them. That's the context. The Svartos answer, not very precise, is look, you're right. Maybe it doesn't make sense, but God wants you to be nice. There are certain things we do because we're nice. You're right. It doesn't make sense. It's nice. We do things that are nice. Um, I mean, it doesn't make sense from an economic perspective, but it's definitely a nice thing to do. And this is one of those nice things. Now, I'm not sure how much that helps, um, but
2: <coughs> <coughs>
1: <coughs> it makes more sense um, when you look at the Rambam, because the Rambam sharpens it. And he says as follows, mitzvat asei la <l'halvot> l'aniyei Yisrael. The primary mitzvah, if not the exclusive one, is not to lend to anybody. If you noted in the verses, we go up for a second, there is a common theme. Right? While in Dvarim, it just says to your brother. In Vayikra and in Shemot, it says, Im ami, et When you lend to my nation, to the poor. And in Vayikra, achicha, When your brother is poor, it, dot, dot, dot. So the Rambam frames it as follows. There's a positive commandment to lend money to the poor. You might think you have the choice whether or not to lend. You must lend him money. Umitzvah. Right? And this mitzvah is even greater than tzedakah. And the Torah is very particular about someone who doesn't lend money. Now, the Rambam doesn't say it explicitly, the other commentaries do, but I just, for simplicity, I put the Rambam. If you focus on the mitzvah here and say that this isn't, it may be true halachically that you're not allowed to lend money to any person with interest, any Jew with interest. But primarily, like the Torah's main goal when it set this up was because most loans that were made in the time of um, in the time of the Torah, when it wasn't really a money based society. Um, were for people who were short on cash and were probably poorer. So giving them a loan was a form of staka. If giving them a loan is a form of staka, then look, no one ever said, when you give charity, how could you do that? It's the bad economic move. You've just lost money. Everyone understands, yes, that's right. Giving charity is not an economic, right? This is not an a, a investment in the monetary sense of the word. I'm doing it because I'm a good person. I'm doing it because I care about the the poor person. I'm trying to help them. Um, No one asks you, or they shouldn't, because if they do, they're a bad person, right? Why are you giving charity? That's a bad investment. Yes, it's a bad investment. It's not meant to be an investment. It's called charity. It's called taking care of people. But if the mitzvah of lending money is primarily to the poor, so then we can understand why there's a prohibition to lend with interest. Because if the people who are coming to you for a loan are the poor, they don't really have the money to pay that back either. So for you to add interest is to totally miss the point that yes, you're gonna lose money, but the same way we expect you to give up of your money to help the poor. So one way of doing that is a straight handout. And the other is look, I could give the poor person $500 Or I could lend them $10,000 for a year in a year when inflation will only be 5%. Right. And it's the equivalent of me giving them $500. But you know what? In one case, they feel like they got a handout. In the other case, they don't feel like they got a handout because I gave them $10,000 and they gave me back $10,000. It's true. The $10,000 they gave me back isn't worth the same $10,000 that I gave them. But you know what? Psychologically, that $500 gift feels a lot less like a gift than the $500 handout. right? So it makes a lot of sense that, now again, primarily, primarily, um, the laws of interest may apply to a poor person. That doesn't mean that halakhically it doesn't also apply to other people um, for a multiplicity of reasons. Um, first as we'll see there may be other reasons for the laws of interest <clears throat> second what it means to be poor is is interesting because you could be you know destitute poor but you could also be poor in the sense that look i need to make this investment now and i don't have the money right my business needs the, I, an influx of of cash right now i'm not poor in the sense i'm starving but i am poor in the sense i don't have as much funds as i need right so poor can take on different connotations um, it could just be that the Torah in general, um, you know, makes generic rules and therefore it applies in all circumstances, but however you want to take it, if you think that the laws of rebeat fundamentally are an expression of something along the lines of staka. so then we understand why the Torah can tell us to act against our economic interests and lend money without interest, right? Because yes, lending money looks like something we do as part of the economy, but it's not really, that's a ruse. We're telling you to lend money, especially when the person is poor, as another form of stuck-up. It happens to be a form of stuck-up where you get most of your money back. But admittedly, what you gave them was help when they needed it. You gave them the time value of money. You gave them the inflation, right? It doesn't look like a handout. It doesn't look like a gift, but at some level, it really is. Um, now, the tour also seems to think that the mitzvah primarily of lending money is to the poor, right? Mitzvah, mitzvah, I say, la lanieh, Yisrael, right? There's a positive commandment to lend money to the poor. Um, however, he notes in Daled, V'afilu ashir, sh'tzareich l'lavot, mitzvah lahavoto, to, she'ah. U'lanoto, afbedvarim li'atso, itzao lo. It happens to be that a rich person, there's also a mitzvah to lend money to him. Um, and again, why is that? Is it secondary? Is it because if he needs the money right now, so he's in a certain sense poor? But it's clear from his hierarchy that, yes, it's true that all these about around lending money apply to the poor as well, to the rich as well. But still, conceptually, it's primarily about the poor. And that's why it makes sense. Now, if that's the case, we have to wonder, now, why wouldn't it apply to non-Jews, right? The mitzvah of does apply to non-Jews, at least as the Gemara and Gitin says, right, for the ways of peace, which either mean minimalist and a minimalist interpretation that we simply want them to not hate us. And if we are giving charity to our own and not to them, it'll cause animosity or with a maximalist interpretation suggested by people like uh, Rav Dov Svi Hoffman and Rav Aram Salvechik, um and Rav Yosef Dov aging in a slightly different formulation, that Darke Shalom means um, not pragmatic, but because the ways of Torah are pe- are, are peace, right? That the ways of Torah are shalom, the ways of Torah are peace. Darkei Shalom means that we give charity to non-Jews Um, because that's the ethos of the Torah. That's the right thing to do. That's what it means to be godly and to be part of society and things like that. Um, So especially if you take that maximalist read, then why would it be that we could lend money to non-Jews with interest? So I think what you have to suggest is that that may be true. But as the the halacha uh, makes clear, when it comes to charity, um, and we talked about this in Elul um, when we did our uh, when we did our um, class on uh, fundraising in the globalized world. Um, we do believe that you should get stuck at everybody, but for practical reasons um, and and moral reasons, Torah dictates that your primary responsibilities of charity are to your inner concentric circles, right? Your family first and then to your friends, and only then to the outer circles. So it could be that, um, yes, a certain amount of charity goes to non-Jews as well, but the entire institution of lending money without interest, even if it's sort of related to the laws of Staka, it's a particularly uh, demanding um, and far-reaching institution. So maybe that one is limited to our inner circles. Okay, but we'll see more of that in just a minute. But that's one thesis for what the laws of repeat teach us. Right? And that is that there are certain things within the halachic economy that they look like they're economic. Right? They look like this is buying and selling and lending money. Right? This is just normal economic activity. Um, but looks can be deceiving. Right? It's not. Right? Fundamentally, the halacha to lend money to a Jew without charging interest is really another way of saying giving, give the poor. And along the way, if you happened to um, lend money to rich people, okay, we'll just sort of include it within the general category, but that's not really what the point of this was. Um, lend the money without interest. I know it looks like a bad investment and, and, and sheds light on the Torah's economy and tells us that You know, the Torah doesn't care about making money and doesn't recognize the time value of money and the reality of inflation. No, the Torah just recognizes that some things look like a bad investment and what they really are is a form of charity. That's all. That's what this is. That's one thesis. The Ramban, however, doesn't focus on the word ani. He focuses on a different word in the verse and that is achicha, your brother um and the ramban says in 10 um as follows gamzu misu mvuret yosef zara zarah gamlulove masha ingain bi khol dinay mamona we're going to add something here in the laws of of lending that we don't find in other monetary law shimratzul is open at ben hazab rashai o min regilora khe who has hierbogamalove said, listen, normally, if I'm not allowed to break my neighbor's property, but if he says, go ahead, break my window, I don't care, right? Play baseball in my backyard and hit that baseball through my window. I don't care. Then there is nothing wrong with me doing that. If he doesn't care, then I don't have to care, right? He, He told me to do it. In interest, we don't let you do that, right? Even if the lender... (laughs) and the borrower agree, even if the borrower, borrower initiates and says, listen, I really need the loan. And I know you don't have that much money and you can't afford the loss of the time value of money and the inflation. I know you're scared. Listen, I'm willing to pay you the interest, right? Even if the, the borrower initiates, doesn't matter. Nobody, the, the lender the borrower, the witnesses, as we'll see, they all violate the laws of rebit and they have no option of waiving their rights. No one's allowed to do that. He said that's one weird thing about rebit. Second of all, it's weird. He said, second of all, you're allowed to lend to a non-Jew with interest, but you're not allowed to damage them. You can't steal from a non-Jew. Right? So if lending money with interest is wrong, so why is it limited to Jews? So he says, well, it's very simple. <inaudible> he said, listen, you know what the key is? Lending money with interest is not wrong because you both agreed to it. You both agreed to it. This isn't theft, right? You've made a deal. You made a deal. I give you $1,000 for six months. You pay me back 3%. I'm giving you a good rate, okay? I know that might even be below what inflation will be this year, right? 3% over six months. But you know what? (coughs) (coughs) You agree. I agree. It's not theft. We made a deal. We're both okay with it. Then why isn't I can't do, I can't lend money with interest? He says, Mitzad haachva." said, because of brotherhood and kindness as it is commanded that you shall love your brother like yourself he says very simply he says look the key is as follows lending money with interest isn't wrong for all the reason we talked about at the beginning it makes sense and now he adds and you both agreed to it so it can't be wrong If it was wrong to lend money with interest, then you could not lend interest with interest to a non-Jew because you can't steal from the non-Jew. You can't wrong the non-Jew. And how could it be wrong? You both agreed. And how, if it was really wrong, it was like just like regular damage. So then why shouldn't the lender be allowed to say, the, the borrower be allowed to say, listen, I'm throwing in the money. I don't care, right? Just like I can tell you to break my window, I can tell you to take my extra money with interest. We don't let you do it. We don't let you do it because this institution is predicated on brotherhood. Now, what does he mean? So what the Ramban is telling you is as follows, very simply, if I lend money to a stranger, I lend them $10,000. As we said, it is irrational for me to lend money for a year without interest. I am losing so much simply by the fact that I'm not, I don't have that money in my property. That it's just irrational for me to lend money without interest, flip the situation. My sister comes to me and says, Jonathan, I need a loan, right? I need a loan, I'll pay you back, but I need a loan for whatever. I say, fine, I have this $10,000 I was, you know, I was putting, putting aside, you need it, it's yours. If I said, but you need to pay me back interest, even a 1% interest, that's just wrong. Like that's not how you treat siblings, right? That's just not like, you know, okay, did you, are you going to lose out? Sure, sure. But you know what? If a stranger asked me to borrow my car, I would probably hem and haw more Right. And be like, why would I lend you my car? Right. Maybe if I if if you pay me, maybe if I, you know, you pay me so I can get higher level, you know, insurance while you have it. I mean, I don't really understand why I'm giving to you. Even if a neighbor asked for, you know, I have my cousins coming in for a Simcha, you know, can they use your car? I might be like, you know, I'm not so comfortable. Right. If my sister asked me, I only have one sister, so that's going to be my only example I can give, right? But if my sister asked me and said, you know, Jonathan, can I borrow your car? Because I need a seven-seater, and you'll, you know, I only have, you know, you you have a seven-seater, I only have a five-seater, right? I may have the same concerns, right? Every time someone takes the car and drives somewhere, you know, it could it, it could get damaged, could get into an accident, could whatever. But I'm much more likely to take that risk with my sister because you know she's my sister, right? So the Ramban says, does lending money with interest make sense economically? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Except every Jew is your brother, is your sibling. It doesn't make any sense when you're lending to your siblings. That's not how you treat siblings. Now, (coughs) is that an economic claim, right? Or not? So here... I'm going to skip because we're already running over low on time, but we'll get there. Um, I I want to claim that it sort of is, right? Make a broad point, and then we'll see how many of the gemaras we get through. I put basically all, everything in the middle there, just the key gemaras that you can look at. And we didn't even get to the question of, well, what do we do with the laws of rebate in modern economy? Um, Meaning, not the laws of rebate, but the loophole, which is heteriska which is when is it proper to use the loophole? I'm gonna leave that for now. We're not gonna to get to that tonight. Um, maybe we'll do that next week, even though I wanted to do something else next week. Um, but I wanna argue that at a certain level, um, it may not be an economic claim, but it's not at odds with a theory of, of, of economics. Um, and I wanna claim that based on the father of modern capitalism. Um, Adam Smith, so if anyone has ever studied economics, um, especially Smith, um, you might have come across, I would hope you would have come across um, what has become known as the Adam Smith problem. Now, the, what is the Adam Smith problem? So the Adam Smith problem is that there's a seeming contradiction between his two great works. So Adam Smith, while posthumously is most famously known for his book on economics, The Wealth of Nations, in his lifetime, he was actually much better known for his book on ethics, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Um, and in Wealth of Nations, he has the following very famous sentence to say <laughs> about <clears throat> how you should go about expecting to get things that you need in life, right? Food, things like that. So he says in Wealth of Nations, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. We addressed ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love, and never talked to them of our own necessities, but of their advantages. Nobody but a beggar chooses to depend chiefly upon the benevolence of his fellow citizens. Even a beggar does not depend on it entirely. The charity of well-disposed people indeed supplies him with the whole fund of his subsistence. But though this principle ultimately provides him with all the necessaries of life, which he has occasion for, it neither does nor can provide him with the same as he has occasion for them. The greater part of his occasional wants are supplied in the same manner as those of other people, by treaty, by barter, and by purchase. With the money which one man gives him, he purchases food. The old clothes which another bestows upon him, he exchanges for other old clothes which suit him better, or for lodging, or for food, or for money with which he can buy either food, clothes, or lodging as he has occasion. Right? So in Wealth of Nations, well, Adam Smith says, listen, you want to get things in life, then don't tell people, please have mercy on me. I really like that car. I really like that food. He's like, beggars do that, but even beggars don't really think that they can live everything in their life by, um, by appealing to people's generosity. If they did, they wouldn't be out there asking for money on the street. They would just go to the baker, right? They would go directly to the person who sold the food and say, can I please have food? The fact that they're outside asking people for money, which they then take in to buy food from the bakery, from the supermarket, shows they understand that it doesn't always work to just go to someone and say, please, I need food. That's Adam Smith in Wealth of Nations, right? You want something in life, then you have to explain to the other person why it's in their best interest to give it to you. You know, you're paying for it or whatever. Um, that's the Wealth of Nations. In The Theory of Moral Sentiments, his book on ethics, he writes as follows Concern for our own happiness recommends to us the virtue of prudence, concern for that of other people, the virtues of justice and beneficence of which the one restrains us from hurting, the other prompts us to promote that happiness. Now that's just two lines out of a very long book, but there he comes up with this idea of beneficence, right? That our concern for for ourselves should include concern for other people. That's just how things work. (laughs) So people have put up these two sections of Adam Smith and said, wait a second, In theory of moral sentiments, he says to care about yourself should mean caring about other people. In Wealth of Nations, he says, if you want to get things from other people, just assume they don't care about you. They care about themselves. So which is it? Right? Do you expect the economy to run because people just care about themselves and you work towards proving that your self, your interest and their interests align? Or Do people's self-interest include other people? Which one is it? So there are many solutions and some people who think this is not a problem at all. But when I was in college and my thesis advisor in college was Professor James Otteson. And this is, he's one of the world experts um, on Smith. This was the topic of his dissertation. Um, And whether or not he's right in Smith, I think he's right in the Ramban. I think he's right in Smith, but I'm no expert to to weigh in on that. But He wrote a book called (coughs) The Marketplace of Morals, um, which I gave you just a page at the end. Um, And he writes as follows. Nevertheless, there are ways to mitigate the Adam Smith problem, two ways in particular. A single conceptual model for understanding the growth and maintenance of human institutions underlies both books, a model that at once unifies the philosophical methods Smith employs in each And gives a single constant understanding of human nature nature and the association institutions that people naturally form simply stated this model is that of a market in which free exchanges amongst people pursuing their own interests give rise over time to an unintended system of order which is the first thing is that smith thinks that a market for smith the fundamental idea of the market the invisible hand right, that magic sentence that he, that magic phrase that he comes up with is that a market isn't planned, right? The relationships that we build with people naturally emerge into a market. Um, that's the first, first point. But then he adds that those self-forming um, models, right, those self-forming markets exist at two levels. They exist in the economy, but they also exist on the plane of morality, right? The social networks that we that we build also emerge spontaneously and create a moral market as it were, right um, which parallels it right So he says, I think Smith sees this model at work in all large scale human institutions, including in particular in, in particular common standards of morality and economic marketplaces, right so morality in, in theory of moral sentiments and economic marketplaces in wealth of nations. If this model proves coherent and capable of actually explaining the institutions it is meant to explain, it might also provide a first step towards solving the general problems of mixing morality and, market, uh, and, morality and markets. That's point one. Point two, the second factor is something I shall call the familiarity principle which substantially unifies the apparently conflicting pictures of human motivation and theory of moral sentiments and wealth of nations. Smith develops the familiarity principle in TMS, arguing that people's natural benevolence towards others varies directly with their familiarity with them. The more familiarity, a a familiar a person is to one, the greater the tendency to feel benevolent towards him. The less familiar the less, ben- the, the less benevolent. Smith argues in Theory of Moral Sentiments that the familiarity principle is moreover justified by the judgment of the, impar- of the impartial spectator. When this principle is applied to people, quote, actors and economic marketplaces, we shall find that their proper motivations should be quite similar to what it turns out, Smith presupposes, is the motivation of economic f- actors in Wealth of Nations. I shall a- then argue that taking together these two factors, the market model and the familiarity principle, substantially unified Smith's two books, eventually, effectively dissolving the Adam Smith problem. And I'll just read an, uh, another few lines, and then I'll br- bring it to, back to repeat. An implication of the familiarity principle is that people will and should feel relatively little benevolence, even perhaps none at all, for distant acquaintances, strangers, and as Jerry Miller puts it, the anonymous others with whom one daily comes into fleeting contact. Because one knows such people so little, and because one has not had the opportunity to form habits of sympathy with them, one feels little or no natural affection for them. In such cases, Smith thinks, the impartial spectator approves of behavior that manifests a minimal level of benevolence, though as always, his approval is limited to behavior that is within the bounds of justice right? To people that we don't really know, you owe them basically justice, right? Be fair, maybe a little bit nice, but fundamentally, I don't know them and I don't have any more relationship with them as anybody else. So all I owe you is to be fair, right? I give you a price. I don't cheat you. You pay the price. I give you the object. That's what I owe you. I'm perfectly honest, but I don't know. Right. I could sell to you. I could sell to I could sell to him. I could sell to her. I don't know who you are. All I owe you is what is the agreement we made. However, if you're my brother, I owe you a lot more. Right. Objectively speaking, I owe you more. Right. You are part of my self-interest and therefore I owe you more because to help you is also in my self-interest because you're part of, right? Because I'm familiar with you. I care about you. And therefore I actually want to help you, not just be just with you and be fair with you. I want to be nice to you. I want to help you, right? I don't want to just give you something because you gave me money and I'm being fair. I want to give it to you because you want it or you need it. And I want to give it to you. And therefore what he, for what, what Odysseus argues is that even Smith, right, the father of modern economics, when he felt that economics, right, fundamentally worked on justice and self-interest, right, that all I owed to the world essentially is to be fair and honest. But beyond that, it's totally legitimate for me to say I will only sell this for the right price. And I don't care if you need it or want it, right, I will sell it to you for a price because you may need it, but so does she and so does he. And I need the money and I can't just give it out to everybody because then I'll go bankrupt and I'll need money for my family, which I won't be able to get. And therefore, if I'm, I'm charging you the right price and I'm not cheating you, I owe you justice. If you are my brother, if you are my child, if you are my parent, if you're my best friend, right? Then no, I owe you more than just the honest price. If you really need something and I have it, <clears throat> then I should stretch myself for you because I care about you, and it's in my self-interest because I already care about you to help you and that at some level is part of the economy recognizing that the economy itself, as we talked about le- last week, is an expression of society right and therefore there's a marketplace of life right of and th- of friendship and relationship, and then there's the marketplace, which is essentially the relationships of strangers, the people within my inner circle, I actually owe them something differently. I owe them benevolence. I owe them kindness, not just justice. And that makes sense economically because I can afford to do that. I can afford to be benevolent if it's only to the people that I'm supposed to care about more. The people that are total strangers, my only way of determining who I sell the object to or who I give the money to is the person who gives me the right deal. But if you're my inner circle, I don't, I can afford to be nice. I can afford to care about you and allow non-economic concerns in because you're part of my inner circle. It's not the entirety of my life, right? I can relegate my money-making part of my life to strangers to whom I only owe justice, but to my inner circle, I owe them kindness. I owe them benevolence. And that's rational. That makes sense. I think that if you combine this with the Ramban, this is what the Ramban is telling us about Rebit and what Rebit therefore tells us about the Jewish view of the economy. And that is that, listen, as the Ramban says, a non-Jew, you can't steal from a non-Jew, you can't damage his property, of course you can't because the non-Jew who you don't know who's passing by at the marketplace, you can't hurt them because you owe them justice. You don't have to go out of your way, right? To give them something for free, right? You don't have to give them a deal because if they're not going to buy it at the price you want, the next person will buy it at the price you want. And you have the right to ask for that price. It's a fair price. You can ask for it. Be honest, be calm, right. Be courteous, right? Well, obviously that's to everybody in the world. The novelty of the Torah is that that, inner circle, to whom I owe not just justice, but a benevolence, kindness, where I owe them things that don't make sense economically, but make sense in, in, from the perspective that, well, I care about you, and therefore I should feel like it's my best interest to do things that are in your interest, even if they're not in my economic interest, but they're in my emotional interest, because I care about you, because you are, right, because of the familiarity principle. That's what guides the laws of rebith, right? That's why I can't lend money to another Jew with interest. But here in the last two minutes, I have to make the major point, which is what's crazy about that is that Adam Smith is willing to accept that type of theory between most of the world and literally my inner circle, my friends and family, The Torah takes that principle, according to the Ramban, and it says the whole world on one side and all Jews on the other side. Except if you were living in Israel, where most of the people there were Jews, that means that according to the Ramban, the laws of Rebit, and you might expect other laws are telling you that what looks like the economy is not just the economy of the market, right? It's not just the market of, you know, the market. It's the market of morality, right? It's the market of the familiarity principle, except it's a whole country and a whole society. And that whole society is functioning with the familiarity principle built into the economy itself, which obviously Adam Smith could not have imagined, right? Because that would be an entire country functioning, not just on justice, but on benevolence. That, I think, indicates one of the things that, that makes the economic system unique in Torah. And that is the understanding that because all Jews are brothers, um, all Jews are siblings, all Jews are family, um, the entire economy has to function a little bit differently than it would in a world, even which was run by justice, where everything was fair. But it, fair isn't enough in a Jewish society, right? The economy itself has to incorporate the familiarity principle and the recognition that you're supposed to care about people even when you're doing your business deals. And therefore the, the you know, your self-interest as it were is not just about you. It's about the person buying from you and the person borrowing from you also. But that makes it really complicated to figure out how that's gonna work in the modern economy um, because it's hard enough to imagine that in society where it's completely, you know, it's all Jews run by Torah. If that's the model of it, so sure, I can't lend money to other Jews with interest, but you've got to figure out, well, what it, then what, what does a law like this tell us when we're a minority embedded in? The truth is that it might make it easier, right? It might be easier to say, I won't lend money to Jews when we're the minority of society right? The Raman's model at some level actually is easier to understand in a society where we're a minority, right? So in Israel, this is hard to say. In America, it's much easier to say, okay, so if your neighbor who's Jewish asks you money to, to, to borrow money, you lend without interest. But there's plenty of other people that when you lend money, you lend with interest, and that's fine, right? In Israel, you really got to think about it because to say everyone is a brother, is actually a very hard thing to implement, the last thing I'll just throw out, and this is really, um, I'll think about whether this should be the topic for next week, even though, you know, because of a limited number of weeks, um, you know, <clears throat> maybe not. Um, the other major question around interest, and I know I'm two minutes over, but we started two minutes late, so I'll get my that. Um that, is, so I, I really will finish in a minute, is that um, in the tourist economy, um, it, as I mentioned in the beginning, it really wasn't a money-based economy. Um, and capital, you you didn't really need capital to make money. You needed capital um, to prevent yourself from going under or you needed to borrow money for food. Um, so a lot of these laws make a lot more sense. Um, what many postum have said is that at a philosophical level, um, it may make less sense when people are legitimately borrowing money um, to make a lot more money, right? Or because... I don't know. They're Elon Musk and they're worth $200 billion and they don't want to liquidate their assets. So they borrow against their $200 billion in stock. They borrow $44 billion to buy Twitter, right? Things like that. In a world where that might be why someone buy, b- borrows money, every philosophical model of, of rebate seems to fall away a little bit. Um, and what the postkin really struggled with in, in the 20th century was- Okay, the laws of Rebeat don't change. You still can't lend money with interest. But there is a workaround called a heteriska where we can, too complicated to explain right now, but you can lend money and call it an investment and therefore essentially charge interest. Um, if, even if it works legally, is it the right thing to do in the modern economy where things have changed so much, where the philosophy, the philosophical perspectives behind Rebeat uh, may not be true, but the letter of the law may. may and that is really a question about how loopholes work um, in general. So maybe we'll talk about it next week. But my my preference really, I'll just tell you for the rest of the course, is to talk about competition, um, to talk about pricing, um, and possibly price gouging uh, in the last week. Um, I that's my preference is for the next three weeks. Um, but people can email me if they would rather me take an extra week and talk about um, the loopholes for Rebeat in the modern world and what that tells us. But I've already went over time, so I will open it to questions. I think there was one question in the chat. No, there was not. That was just the sources. Um, okay, so if there are any questions, I will stop the sh- screen share. Where is my stop? There it is. Okay. I will stop and the screen share, and if there are any questions
0: into yep. our viewers on that includes you guys too and if you're if you haven't accepted the the invitation to panelists and you want to ask a question directly, you see raise hand function or ask to speak, and I'm happy to unmute you. just
1: uh. Um, okay, and, and obviously, if you can look through the source sheet, you'll see what I really included there were the primary gemarot, if you want to sort of flesh out um, the halachic implications of, uh, of rebeat, But rebit is an infamously complicated topic to get into the nitty-gritty. Um, you know, even uh, – at least in Israel, even even if you're a dayan, even if you're a rabbinic judge, you don't have to specialize in rebeat. It's not actually on the, the mandatory part of the test. Um, so not every rabbinic judge knows it either. Um, okay. Good. Um, Well, thank you, everyone, for coming, and I will see you next week. The plan then will be either we'll do, I forget if I put pricing for next week or competition, but one of them. Okay.
0: All right. That sounds exciting. I'm certainly (coughs) looking forward to that. I hope you guys all are, too. Uh, Our next class at Drisha is coming up soon at 2.30 (coughs) p.m. time on Women in Rabbinic Law and Narrative with Dr. Shama Shik. If you would like to find out about this and other Dresha classes, you can do so at Drisha.org slash classes. Thank you everyone and have a good day or a good evening.
1: Yeah, okay. Have a good night.
2: Take care.